welcome back to another deep dive episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. We're coming to you this week from a very special location for the week that's in it. Uh, we are at Metron Additive Engineering uh, here in England, and we're here because, well, Metron do quite a lot of 3D printing, but as we just found out earlier this week, they were also heavily involved in 3D printing the current R record holding bike and the bike that will be challenging the R record this coming Saturday evening uh, under Filippo Ganna. That is the new Pinarello Bolide FHR 3D frame. And we've got Dimitris Katsanis, the brains behind Metron Engineering, with us today. Yeah, to go on a deep dive talk on 3D printing, a uh, bit of a history on Metron for us and where we think this technology is going to go in the future. So welcome to the Nerd Alert podcast, Demetrius. Yeah, thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us. Uh, anybody who read my article on cyclingtips.com earlier this week would have seen mention of Metron Advanced Engineering. They may also have seen an article I wrote earlier in the year on your new Mythos 3D printed stem that's, that's now uh, available, but they might not be too familiar with who Metron are. Can you give us a brief history on, on who Metron is and your own personal experience within the cycling industry? Yeah, brief history will be challenging, but uh, let's say that uh, um, I start making bikes for high level. I think I made my first uh, bike in 1989, which was one for my girlfriend. She was uh, like my experimental one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then I actually made my first bikes. They raced in the Olympics in 1992. Okay. And I actually made bikes that they raced in every Olympics ever since. So 92, Barcelona 96 in Atlanta, 2000 in Sydney and Athens 2004 and so forth, so on and so forth. So pretty much every, not pretty much, in fact, every single Olympics since 92 uh, have Olympic uh, bikes racing there. Uh, Metron as we know it today, it actually become um, a com became a company that uh, we started doing things initially with carbon fiber. Uh, in, uh, actually, I was a student in Plymouth University studying composites engineering. And then I started making, you studied composites engineering, what do you do with carbon fiber? You make a carbon fiber bike frame, of course. <laughs> so I went on and I made as my um, university project uh, carbon fiber bike frame. And then I supplied a number of teams. I think, in, if I remember correctly, it was in total 11 national teams in 96. A lot of them, they actually raced in the Olympics. Then, uh, not long after that, about a year later, uh, the UCI decided to change the rules and these monocoque frames that I used to make, they were illegal from the 1st of January 2000. Mm -hmm. So my little business in Plymouth on making carbon fiber monocoque frames it pretty much disappeared. Actually, before it, it was gone, my last customers, they were actually um, three riders from British Cycling. Um, Jason Quilly, that uh, a couple of years later, he became the Olympic champion in the kilometer in Sydney. Mm -hmm. Craig McLean, uh, he was a very good Scottish rider. And then another one that uh, many people heard of, Chris Hoy. Yes. Uh, so they all rode my old version of the monocoque frame. Um, and that was like the, you know, if we think back now, it was like the beam bike yes. sort of design. Yes, okay. it was a beam bike design. Uh, you know, if, if you type in on Google Chris Hoy Metron, mm -hmm. you can find a, a picture of Chris Hoy on one of the Metron bikes on rollers and so on. 
but a UCI rule change sort of put you out of business overnight? Yes, almost? in effect, with the UCI rule change, uh, what I was doing was uh, ruled uh, illegal. Mm -hmm. By that time, I spent uh, all the money and, uh, and time and effort that I could on making these monocoque frames. So then I decided I'll just close the business down and uh, go and work for somebody else. And actually, I was quite lucky because I came uh, somewhere near Derby and I started working for a company called Ad uh, Advanced Composites Group. So I worked as a composites engineer for a number of years with them. And I continue in the background doing bikes. So the first few bikes that I've done, like in 2000, the Greek national team, they were racing with some carbon fiber bikes that I designed and uh, we manufactured at Advanced Composites. That was like a, my first triangular frame, if I can call it. Mm -hmm. And then from that point onwards, at the end of 2001, actually I was conducted by uh, somebody at British Cycling and they said, we are interested for some carbon fiber bikes. Would you like to come and talk to us? Mm -hmm. So that's where the relationship with British Cycling started. And uh, the first few bikes, they were delivered in the spring of 2002. Okay. There is somewhere a little video that you can actually find. It was Tomorrow's World from BBC came and they filmed it. And uh, there is a little video somewhere that you can find, which is Chris Hoy riding the very first, uh, what we call a UKSI bike. UKSI stands for UK Sports Institute, mm -hmm. as he was called at the time, because he was the main uh, money provider for that. So Many he, listeners will recognize that name immediately from what followed afterwards. Yes, yes. Yeah. So UKSI, they provided the money. So what we were calling UKSI Mark One. It was called Mark One later, no, at the time it was just UKSI bike. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the first bike was delivered and Chris Hoy is going around to ride it. Actually, the only thing that was different, it was just the frame, not frame and fork, just frame. Okay. Everything else was the same as he had in, on his previous bike. So he goes on the bike and uh, he goes around the track. He's doing a flying um, 200 meters. Mm -hmm and uh, he immediately broke his own personal record. It was also the track record at the time. He went from 9.98 to 9.75. 9.98 9 to 9.75, this is almost quarter of a second. And the test run. Quarter of a second on this kind of sp speeds is actually, uh, you at this kind of speeds, you're moving at about 20 meters a second. So quarter of a second is five meters ahead. So all of a sudden you go from one bike frame to another bike frame, the rest of the components are the same, and you are five meters ahead of your competitor if you were shoulder to shoulder. So that, I mean, I, I kind of knew that my bikes, they would be great. Was that, was that purely aerodynamics or was that? No, 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 this is actually one of my very interesting points that, uh, yes, the bike was aerodynamic, but the previous bike that he had, it wasn't, it wasn't bad really, to be fair, in terms of aerodynamic. Yes, maybe my bike was a bit more aero, but previous one was not, it was not completely rubbish. It was, was a good bike actually. But I think, and I, I only have circumstantial evidence about this, I think a big part of that is stiffness. Okay. One of the main things that I target from early on, because I started working with high level sprinters since the early 90s, I realized that a stiff frame 
it seems like it has some performance advantage when you put a big, powerful rider. We're talking about like 100 kilo sprinters, you know, in effect, bodybuilders on bikes. Mm -hmm. So this is not really your average 60 or 70 kilo road rider. And uh, there are a lot more explosive, there's a lot more power going through the bike. So that was the time that I first realized stiffness might actually play a role. And uh, ever since, and even since before that, I was always designing very stiff bikes for that level of riders. Mm -hmm. Of course, when you're gonna have to do it for the road, you have to tune it back a little bit. But even then, I think stiffness matters. It's a bit complicated to explain, but I think it has to do something with the wheels. As you push in the pedals, the wheels coming out of alignment, in effect, mm -hmm. under the forces and the scrubbing. Okay. I don't really have proper scientific evidence of that. It's more circumstantial evidence. Like since then, the UKSI bikes, they went uh, through several iterations and pretty much every single time a new bike was delivered to a new rider, that new rider goes on the track and does pretty much their personal best, pretty much straight away every single time. So you don't have the data, but you have the, the personal best to back it up. It's, it's very much like uh, circumstantial evidence. Yeah. And uh, actually, I was just discussing something like this just last week with somebody. I'm still trying to find somebody who wants to put the money in to actually find out is, does this matter or not. My experience says it matters, mm -hmm. but we don't, I don't really have, if you tell me some of your data, I, I don't have it. So you have a long history in the sport then, you know, listeners and readers might not have recognized the Metron name, but yeah. they would have certainly seen a lot of the components and bikes that you've manufactured yeah. through the years yeah. in Olympics, World Championships. Uh, yeah, the highest level of the sport. Yeah. Actually, it's quite interesting. I have somewhere a list which I stopped um, stop keeping probably three or four years ago that it reached 100 gold medals on Olympics and World Championships. We're not talking about World Cups or other things. We're talking about World Championships mm -hmm. and Olympics. So this is parts that they were designed, either designed or designed and manufactured by myself and my, my guys at Metron. And as you were just showing us a second ago, it actually extends beyond cycling as well. This is a, yeah. a wing from a Formula One car. Yeah. You just showed us a hip for yeah. a hip replacement. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're involved in all sorts. Yeah, I mean, the, the range of uh, stuff that I got involved is like aircraft parts uh, from fighter aeroplanes to um, commercial aircraft, mm -hmm. uh, Formula One parts, parts they're going on printing machines, medical parts they're going as, you said, hip replacements or uh, what they call cranial plates and all sorts of different bits. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's very interesting because if you look on the grip, you, you, can, you can see how technologies, they cross from one field to the other. Mm -hmm. So if you look on the grip of the handlebar that Ghana is using on the road, most of the time, and I think we made one also for um, Geraint Thomas, the grip is actually a mesh structure, an open mesh structure. This yes. is actually coming directly from the uh, medical implants. This is used on medical implants, on the surface of medical implants, so when it goes in the body, the bone actually grows into that, and that implant becomes part of the body. Mm -hmm. But the way we're using it over there is very much like it's a non-slip uh, surface, okay. which is like totally breathable, so you're grabbing it, and you don't have sweat on it because there's no solid surface, it's fully porous, so the sweat can actually just evaporate through. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, that's certainly an interesting use for <laughs> for that sort of technology. But you mentioned how things are transferable, and if if I'm correct in thinking, your or Metron are actually like aerospace qualified. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. We are space qualified. There is there is an international standard called AS nine one hundred, and it's a, in effect a quality standard. So in effect, it controls your manufacturing process and how you're keeping records and things like this. So in effect, for everything we do, we have full traceability on who made it, when, on which machine, with what material, what materi where this material came from, was it the proper uh, properties and so on. Mm -hmm. So you, you have all the records, if something goes back, you can trace it. Like to give you an idea, uh, these handlebars and so on, when they are being made, the machine takes a, a photograph for every layer. Mm -hmm. So the, um, the laser or the electron beam comes on and it melts the material. The machine takes a picture and then puts more material and then it does it and it takes another picture. So you have a visual record of every single layer, which this can be, I don't know, four or 5,000 layers, depending on uh, how big the part is. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have a visual record. So you can go back and have a look, was it okay? In fact, the machine gives you very much like a graph when it finishes and it tells you the density of that particular layer of uh, throughout the build. Mm -hmm. And it's very useful to check, did I make a good component or not? That's uh, certainly something I hope to delve into a bit later on in the, in the show here. But yeah. uh, if I think now, you know, you've, as you said, you've been involved in uh, cycling for a long time, over 30 years at this point, all the way forward to but you know, 3D printing, which is what we're here today to talk about, is a relatively new or relatively young technology. Yeah. If, you know, given that you were so ingrained in carbon fiber and that previously, what was the attraction to 3D printing and how long have you been using it? Actually, um, started using it around 2004, if I remember correctly. Okay. At the time, it was called the rapid prototyping. So in effect, uh, at the time, the technology, you could make plastic parts uh, very quickly, relatively speaking. They were actually very fragile and so on, but they were very good for wind tunnel testing, mm -hmm. also to see if things they fit and so on. So in the early days when we started working with British Cycling and somebody was coming up with a new idea about aerodynamics, you can design it on a computer and somebody could 3D print it in plastic and stick it on the bike and see if it does anything. Mm -hmm. uh, then this developed a little bit later on. You, when you have like carbon components like this, and they have like a very complex shape. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, in this particular case, this one is a sprinter's bar, but let's say this is a, a, a pursuit bar and you want to make some holes over here. Mm -hmm. And this hole is, there's no flat surface. Where do you want to, where can you measure from? That you can say, I want a hole there and not a bit here, a bit there or somewhere else. So then we start making jigs which is like they were actually guiding the drills and stuff like this, but they f they fitting the form of that. Mm -hmm. So because you were fitting this 3D shape, you you know that where you're going to drill or you're going to do some inserts, it was in the correct position. Otherwise, trying to measure where yes. you're going to measure from or where is my hole over here. Mm -hmm. So we start using it quite a lot actually for jigs and fixtures. And then later on, uh, we actually used it on some uh, actual racing parts. Like to give you an idea, the very early um, Pinarello Bolide at the time trial, the covers over the brakes, mm -hmm. the first few, they were actually 3D printed. Okay. Because 
to make the proper runs, you need to make molds, you need to make this, you need to make that. So at the time, because of time constraints, the molds are not ready. So we 3D print them and raise to those, which actually you actually you still see today quite a few um, people in racing they do 3D print components and put them on. Mm -hmm. uh, so around 2012, 2013, I started realizing, oh. Uh, why can we not do metal 3D printing? And I realized the technology it was coming up. It was already in existence for easily 10 years. Okay. But it was very early days. The material selection wasn't very great. The know-how wasn't very great. So I realized that the, the technology is coming up. The know-how is coming up. So at the end of 2015, <laughs> uh, when my girlfriend was away, I went out and I bought a mega expensive machine. <laughs> so she was away for a month or something like this. So I went on and I bought a mega expensive machine. So when she came back, you know, he was there, she couldn't do anything. So that was my first metal 3D printer, which makes titanium parts. Okay. And was uh, this, this was in this office space or was this at home? No, at, or at, the time, this? at the time, I actually, I didn't, have, no, I didn't have a space at all. Okay. So I actually had to buy the machine and put it in storage somewhere till I find the space. Okay. So actually, although I bought the machine, the machine actually arrived on the 24th of December, 2015. It was my Christmas present. Okay. But I didn't have where to put it. <laughs> so I asked some favors around. So uh, like uh, somebody said, oh, you can put it in my factory for a while. So I stored it over there, and it was actually at the uh, beginning of August 2016 we came to this place. We installed the machine, and that's the Arkham machine, which is in there. Okay, yes. Yeah, that was the first. Which we've seen earlier. It's, yeah, it's yeah, pretty yeah. huge. It was, Santa was very good that year. Yeah, <laughs> Santa wasn't bad at the time, but yeah. But that was my very first machine. Actually, I started designing parts for 3D printing in metal before that. Like uh, in 2015, in the beginning of 2015, when the hour record uh, attempt by Bradley Wiggins came. Mm -hmm. I remember that for a, a couple of years, I was trying to push the sky guys, uh, we can do something 3D printing. And they would say, why do you want to do it? You can do it in carbon fiber and it's better. Why mm -hmm. do you want to do it in metal? So I was looking for a headline project. And then when we were doing the hour record bike, uh, it was a matter of time again. It was a big project, very short period of time. So we ended up doing, uh, we ended up like about a month before the event and there was no handlebar. So I said, either we do a 3D printed one or you don't have a handlebar. So they grudgingly agreed. <laughs> and that's how the first full 3D print handlebar was made and used for a whole record attempt. Because there were some other people, they made probably stems and other bits before, but mm -hmm. we're talking about a world-class level yeah. at a world-class event. That, that's the thing that struck me when we come in here this morning. Like we're seeing handlebars, we're seeing stems, we're yeah. seeing uh, all the medical grade components that we yeah. mentioned earlier. We're, we're now looking at a frame also. You're not exactly messing about or playing with a 3D printer here. You're, mm. you're making components that actually, you know, there's, there's quite serious consequences if Absolutely. these things don't work out. Why, I guess it's the, the hope for what the technology can bring, but what was the initial, what are the main benefits that drove you to turn to 3D printing to make such important components? Um, 3D printing is, you need to approach it as is another technology that you can make things, mm -hmm. but you need to try and identify where is it good to use it. Okay. So in general, if you want to make a simple shape, 
like a cylindrical rod that is going to be for argument's sake, a, a 25 millimeters in diameter and I know 30 millimeters long. Yeah, you can make it, but it's going to probably cost you 10 or 50 times more than just going buying it that somebody just makes solid bars or something like this. Mm -hmm. So where it makes sense, it makes sense when you want to make complex shapes, when you want to make uh, shapes that you may want to keep changing the geometry so you don't have a fixed shape, okay. where you want to make shapes that you may be able to take uh, advantage of aerodynamic features that they're too complex uh, to manufacture otherwise. The frame cost was higher for the frame, mm -hmm. but by the time you put all the molds and all that the other stuff, the, 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 um, the total cost was comparable. So cost was one. I don't think anybody expected to hear that. And yeah, for small quantities. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to make tens of thousands, today where the technology is, is, is not going to be the right method. Okay. Maybe in five years' time, maybe it's going to be okay, but today it's not going to be. So cost for low quantities is actually a benefit, uh, meaning overall you're ending up cheaper. Uh, timelines, they are significantly, significantly quicker. Okay. Uh, like to give you an idea, the fastest we ever did a handlebar between I want a handlebar and actually racing with that. It was one Monday evening, uh, kind of three or four years ago, my phone rings and said, we want a handlebar for a time trial. That was Monday around six o'clock, I was going home, I was the last one here. And when do you want it for? We're racing this Saturday <laughs> in the Tour de France. Oh. So uh, I had to stay a little bit later over here, start the machine, do some minor modifications, press the button on the machine, the machine worked for a couple of days. We got it out on Wednesday, we cleaned it, we bonded it, uh, uh, finished it on Thursday. I, there was a guy who was working for me at the time over here. He was only over here for about a month or so. So I had to drive to his house and deliver it like 10 o'clock in the night to his house. So he will fly next Friday morning to Paris and from Paris to Po in southern France to deliver it in a dark car park somewhere to the mechanic and they're going to put it on the bike and race next morning. That's so you just cannot do it in any other way. If you want to do that with carbon, you're talking... You, you won't be able to. Yeah. I mean, okay, there are ways that you can throw things together and make something. Mm -hmm. But over here, we're talking about something that we know that this one will pass the tests. Mm -hmm. So it was a certified uh, um, component. We only needed to do some small modifications to fit the new requirements. So in effect, you know that what you're starting is very repeatable. It's not something that looks the same, it is about as accurate as you can being exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So you have the speed, you have the convenience of changing and making things custom. That is actually a big one. One of the big successes of the handlebars is you make to the rider. Mm -hmm. Very much like the old style frames, they used to be, you're going to your frame builder and we're cutting the tubes and they were welding it to whatever size your frame was, uh, that pretty much disappeared with the carbon fiber frames. They yeah. have four or five frame sizes, some uh, companies all the way to, I don't know, 13, if I'm not mistaken, Pinarello they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, with 13 sizes, you can probably find what you want much better comparing to four or five sizes. Mm -hmm. But you're going to still have some people that are going to say, yeah, that is all right, but I want it two centimeters longer than your standard size and uh, a centimeter lower or whatever it may be. So that today you cannot achieve with a molded carbon fiber yeah. frame. There are some specialists, they're taking it tube by tube and they're just wrapping the corners and so on, mm -hmm. but that's relatively small to be fair. And uh, when you do it like this, they have to overbuild it just to make sure that the thing doesn't go bad. Mm -hmm. So where it may go with the 3D printing, it may go that we may be able to go back to the custom okay. through the use of potentially some clever AI software or something similar that is going to be able to manipulate the geometry mm -hmm. and it was going to be able to do something for you. The, the technology exists today, but today is on early stages. Well, the, the future is something that I want to touch on as well, but if I'm hearing you right, you've, what you're saying is you've gone from, in the example of that handlebar, taking months to create something generic to taking hours to create something custom yeah. to, to the yeah. rider. Yeah. Is there any other benefits in terms of like, uh, obviously you can make it much more aerodynamically optimized yeah. for the individual, you've, yeah. you've touched on that, but in terms yeah. of weight, how, how is the Weight actually works very well. Uh, when I was start doing this, remember I come from a composites background, I started composites and all that stuff. Um, I'm about 30 years doing composites and so on. And uh, when I started doing handlebars, I just didn't think a titanium, handlebar, because titanium is what I start dealing with, a titanium handlebar, it will be lighter than a carbon fiber handlebar. Because if you put it down as mechanical properties of the material, mm -hmm. carbon fiber is like way ahead of titanium. It's both stronger and lighter. So you say, you, you cannot beat it, it's, it's impossible. Uh, but this is like on fiber level, when you start doing it in composite level, it, you're losing a bit, but you're still better. Mm -hmm. Then when you start doing it onto component level, carbon fiber is still better when you try to do a simple shape. Say you do a, a bicycle frame and you have straight round tubes, you make a straight round tube of, out of titanium 3D printing, 3D printed or straight round tube in carbon, the carbon will be both cheaper and lighter and stiffer. Mm -hmm. So you don't really have any benefit. Where it starts paying back is when you want custom interventions or individual, uh, like aerodynamic shapes, um, 3D printing is definitely has the benefit. You know, if I'm again looking around here, the only things that I'm seeing are components and frames and handlebars that are made for world champions and Olympic champions and that. And if I think about those riders, they usually get everything for free. Uh, and we don't see the Metro name too often in any sort of advertising or, you know, we don't hear of, of uh, general consumers ringing up and ordering a Metro component. So I guess, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, you know, you, you mentioned all the benefits of these 3D printed components, but first of all, you know, what am I looking at if I want to buy this yeah. set of aero bars here? And is it even an, an option? To, it, to buy that? Actually, it is an option. Uh, we did sell some of those. Actually, we had a guy who came over here and who did the scanning and the measurements that he's just a private rider. Mm -hmm. uh, you do have today a number of people that are going and they do wind tunnel tests 
in Silverstone mm -hmm. and a um, few other places, and they try to optimize their position and so on. And then they usually finding out that after they do all this optimization and so on, they still have all these handlebars and so on with all the cables sticking out and the levers and this and that and the other. So they say, what can I do with that? Uh, truth to be told, we've done very few outside mm -hmm. the uh, top level riders like Olympics and Tour de France and so on. Maybe partly because we never really chased it. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe because all these years, I don't know, I was just sitting back and the work from the Olympics was keep coming. So I didn't really have much of trying to go out and uh, uh, try to advertise the name and so on. And uh, But then things, they gradually changing and uh, now we do try to go out. There is a little bit of, um, if I can call it a problem. I use a metro name, actually I came up with a metro name when I was at school, that was in the 80s. Okay. And I actually started using it on components, on bicycle frames since the very early 90s. Okay. But today, uh, most of us, we know there are some handlebars that, and wheels, I think, that FSA, they do the same metro on it. Mm -hmm. So although legally I could go and use it, there will be who is this? Is this metronome or the other metronome? Yes. So this is really why when we went on and we we came up with this new name called Mythos. Mm -hmm. This is really where we came up with something that is very different. So we can actually deliver something different because it's three D printed, because you can do it, because it offers some advantage. It's not the weight, by the way. Yes. Because with the weight, to be fair. Um, there are lighter components. We're not really targeting weight on this one. We were targeting like comfort and we're targeting stiffness, which is actually a difficult combination to do. So we moved away from the Metro name partly because somebody else is using pretty much the same name. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do think that now is the right time to move away from the, not, not move away, but we're gonna carry on doing Olympics. Uh, actually, it will be great if uh, right now it looks like we're going to have also parts in the Paris Olympics. Okay. So, but we're going to have the commercial brand coming out. That's going to say Mythos, and this is what we're going to try to identify everything. Of course, when you're selling these things quite a few times to sponsored teams, they're just putting the sponsor name. Yes. But, you know, that's life. I don't think I'm the only one. I'm pretty sure there are plenty of other manufacturers out there that uh, they don't see their name on, but that's the life of the consultant, I guess. Mm -hmm. I, I think what you're, uh, I, I might say it for you, and that you have enough business in making stuff look like a, a, a component from another manufacturer than, than you need. Coming back to the STEM for a second, if there's, if there's another thing that I know about these Olympic champions and world champions, and professional writers in general, is that they tend to be somewhat hesitant with new components and new technology, maybe less so nowadays, but certainly in the past, they would be reluctant to try something new. They'd stick with what they know. And then I look at the stem uh, and it's got holes in it uh, and it's also 3D printed. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's straight away, I, I would be, or I was hesitant in using it. That's partly how we ended up here today. 
Are you getting any resistance from the writers you're currently working with in making 3D printed components? Yeah, I would say it is a bit of a shock to the system. You know, uh, right now it's very much like a marmite type item. Mm -hmm. uh, some people they say I love it. Some people they say My God, what is this thing? <laughs> uh, we even found some writers that uh, I think if you look on our Instagram uh, page, the Mythos. Uh, uh, I think we have. Uh, yeah, there's a Mythos web page, uh, yes. Mythos.bike page, and uh, one of the riders actually found a very innovative way of using the stem that put like an ice cream cone <laughs> in the main hall over here. So <laughs> yeah, you can use it for other things. But uh, to be fair, I think the general way of that people they are resistant to new things is quite justified okay. because there is something new. You, uh, you're using something for many years, something comes up and you go, oh, is this better? Do I need it? Do I want it? And all that stuff. And that's no difference. When I started racing, I, I was actually always racing on an aluminum frame, an old Allen. Okay. I still actually have one of them. Uh, and at the time, everybody else pretty much had a steel frame. Mm -hmm. Then aluminium became the standard and steel frames that pretty much disappeared. Mm -hmm. And then carbon fiber came on and there is, if you turn up on the Tour de France, there is nobody with any frame other than a carbon fiber frame. Mm -hmm. On the track, there are one or two uh, metal frames. Actually, we work with uh, somebody in Italy and we do some parts for their metal frames. Okay. Uh, so we 3D print some parts for uh, their frames. Uh, they do a good job, but that is, uh, they have their own design language and so on. That's their own designs. We just do the, the printing for them. So you have a new technology in your hands. There will be some uh, cases that people, they will get it wrong. As we know, the famous case that happened last year and uh, the handlebar broke under the Australian rider and uh, the poor guy fell flat on his face. Uh, lucky guy, no, he didn't have anything serious, that, thank God for that. Mm -hmm. But that was, I, I cannot really speak for them because at the end of the day, they, they know what happened. I only saw it from the outside. It seems to me that there was potentially some error in the um, in the design, uh, maybe an error on specifying the, the, the forces on the handbar. Mm -hmm. uh, the report that came out of the Australian Federation was talking about that the forces specified they were lower than what they should be. Okay. And that is a common problem that I saw people that they, des they dealing with the road bikes, they don't quite appreciate the, the amount of power track riders they produce, especially when they do standing starts and so on. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit of an underestimate over there and that's what brought the problem. Mm -hmm. it, it, that's what actually caused the problem. Now, if that component was made in a different way and it was designed for these different loads and it was tested on the wrong protocol, it will still fail. It doesn't matter if it was made out of carbon or whatever else. Okay. So it's not the method. The, method, the investigation that they did didn't find anything wrong mm -hmm. with the manufacturing process or anything. Okay. There, was a, there was a specification uh, error mm -hmm. and uh, I have my own opinions about a few other things but that's beyond of what we're talking about. So what do we do with this? That's what I was going to say, put my mind to, put my mind to rest now. How, what are your processes and what materials are you using and what, yeah. you know, what, talk me through making yeah. a 3D stem. So um, th this is made out of scalmaloy, which is scandium aluminium, scandium aluminium and magnesium alloy, which is the same stuff as 
the article pikes made of. Mm -hmm. So what is happening with this one is aluminum is a good material in the sense that in general is lightweight, mm -hmm. but depending on the aluminum grade that you will choose, you will have higher or lower strength. The weight doesn't really change, what changes is the strength of the material. Okay. So most of the 3D printed aluminum parts that you can get out there, they are made with a, an aluminum grade, which is very much like a medium level aluminum grade. It's aluminum silicon 10 magnesium, if anybody's into chemistry, <laughs> <laughs> which is primarily used because of its properties. Like when you melt it, it flows very well and so on. So that actually works well also for 3D printing. But the strength of it is not particularly good. So to give you an idea, the yield strength of skalm alloy is about double that of this medium strength alloy that is used. Uh, probably 95% of the applications that you hear about 3D printing in aluminium mm -hmm. is this medium strength alloy. Okay. So skalm alloy is, is about double. Okay. So I actually waited to find, uh, I waited and I looked around carefully to find out what material I can go and use. Mm -hmm for aluminium parts mm -hmm. and after a lot of research and, and uh, questioning and looking onto the science I came up that Skalm Alloy is actually the best offer you have out there. It's developed by a subsidiary of Airbus so that by itself it means it has a lot of data because what is very important with that is, is not as when you're asking material properties they will give you like one material like very few data but where is my data to show that this is consistent? Mm -hmm. Like this material over here, they're giving you material properties for high temperatures, low temperatures, corrosion, fatigue, all sorts. And when you see how many samples they tested, they tested about a thousand samples. Okay. A thousand samples, that has a very large cost. So in order to do that, you need to have a big company behind. Yeah. Airbus was behind that, it's a material used by Airbus. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why I went for that is because of the heritage behind that. You know that what you're going to get is a high level product. Yeah, well if it's using the airline industry, it, kinda, yeah. it at least sounds like it's going to be better. Yeah. So it, you know it's going to be a high level product and at the end of the day, yes, we we don't make, uh, this is not a part that goes on an aeroplane that if it's going to come down, it's going to be 300 people that are going to die. Mm -hmm. But you still have somebody dressed in lycra mm -hmm. going down a mountain 100 kilometers an hour, sometimes even faster than this. Yes. So if the thing goes bang and breaks, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to make it very easily, you know. So you bloody better know that the thing is good. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how do you know then before you send somebody out in it? How, how do you know? Uh, we do a lot of, I mean, this particular component over here, we've done a massive amount of internal testing. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the early days, we tried uh, different geometries. So we narrow down the geometry. Then we try uh, different uh, parameters. This is how fast the laser goes and mm -hmm. things like this. So we narrow down to certain parameters that uh, works for this, which they were actually just the box standard um, skalm alloy parameters. Okay. And then we we have a number of ranges of size, like a, a, a range of sizes. So we had to make each variant and test it with every parameter mm -hmm. and every size. So I think if I remember correctly, there were 94 stems we made and tested to make sure that every single component is going to go out there, it will be beyond what is necessary. And what is necessary? Is that 
uh, there's I know there's an ISO standard. Yes, there is. Um, it's called uh, ISO uh, forty two ten. Yeah. So forty two ten specifies the loading conditions and so on, uh, how many cycles and uh, sometimes impact test or maximum load testing and stuff like that. And is that, you know, when I when I think about the ISO standard, is that relevant to? Well, is it relevant to the rider going down a mountain at 100 kilometers an hour who might hit a speed bump? And is it relevant to Philippe Ogana starting an hour record? And Yeah, uh, they are usually, okay, if you look on the standard, they will have for road racing, city bikes, mountain bikes, and I can't remember what else. Uh, so they will have different loading conditions for a city bike, for argument's sake, okay. is lo lower. For a racing bike, is higher. Mm -hmm. For a mountain bike, uh, there are a few other things that have to do with the width of the handlebar and stuff like that. So, this is what it covers. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cover really a world champion level. It doesn't cover a world champion sprinter, which is even bigger, even more powerful. Mm -hmm. So, for argument's sake, uh, for the time trial bars that we do, the standard is actually quite simple what it has to do with the extension. It has, like, on each one of the extensions, you just apply a load of uh, 15 kilos, okay. 150 newtons, which is about 15 kilos, and you just let it hang once and that's it, in mm -hmm. effect. And I remember years ago when I saw the riders going 60 kilometers an hour going whack onto the speed bump, I thought like, it feels like it might be more than 15 kilos. Yes. So what uh, we've done then, we developed our own method, okay. which in fact it is in effect 15 kilos on each one down. So it's 15 and 15 down, 15 and 15 up, okay. 100,000 times. Okay. So it's 100,000 times better than the ISO. So it's uh, the same weight, just more repetitions? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because you have the condition of for argument's sake, if something can take, for argument's sake, 100 kilos, 100,000 times, mm -hmm. it will most probably take 300 kilos as a single impact. Okay. And there are different components that have different testing conditions. Like for argument's sake, for the fork, you have static, you have fatigue, mm -hmm. and you have impact, and you have torsion. Mm -hmm. uh, for the handlebar, for, specifically for the handlebar for the extensions, in my opinion at least, the um, the ISO test is not good enough. Okay. Uh, is my uh, interpretation of that good enough? I would say we do this kind of handlebars um, uh, about how many years now? Seven years now. Okay. Uh, we never had anything broken. That's good. <laughs> not, not a single failure. Not a single failure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't just say this too many times, but not a yes. single failure. So then we have, like uh, you may say that uh, uh, this is like an indirect proof that the yeah. system works. And we had uh, no end of gold champions and so on, riding it, riding it from beginning to the end many times. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, we've seen riders, they crashed because things failed. Mm -hmm. And I don't want this to happen with one of my parts. And am I right in thinking, you mentioned earlier that actually each component can be traced back if you did yes. have a yes. traceability. Yeah. So for argument's sake, this handlebar that I'm holding over here, this is one that we made to test the new arrangement of the extensions and so on. Mm -hmm. For uh, So we're making a sample per family. 
So this particular one, it has over here the number, which is the number of the uh, build that it was came on. So from this number, you can trace it back to the specific build that it will tell you who prepared the arrangement, mm -hmm. who prepared the build, what materials he used, was the material in specification. You can trace it back to the certificate of origin of the material and uh, the chemical analysis of the material and the photograph of every single layer of that component. Mm -hmm. And if for argument's sake, you're gonna find later on that there was a flow over here, you will be able to go and find out in that build was there a a void or something like this over there. Yeah. This particular one actually is the one that went through the testing. And that one says, what's that? Uh, 218 newtons, this is like the alternating forces. And it did 138,000, the standard is 100,000. Okay. So we took it to 138,000, and then we took it for 400 newtons, which is in sync, another mm. 100,000. And then we stopped it because nothing broke. <laughs> So that is went the uh, test broke. It went uh, it went over what is the requirement, and okay. uh, we do that because we want to make sure that is the minimum requirement plus. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said so far, that's good. And the stems, for example, it, it looks like the handlebars you're making one handlebar per print, but the stems. How many stems can you make in a single um, print? On the uh, road stem is um, depending on the arrangement and so on. It's about fifty. Fifty, and within those. 50 then, are you like taking one sacrificial one for testing per, per Usually we keep, uh, when you're building things, usually you have uh, the, on each build you have a number of sacrificial uh, uh, bits that you're making, okay. that you're keeping it for the future. So in effect, it's, it's a bar that you make and you keep it as a sample from that particular okay. build. Mm -hmm. So if you want to test it, test a material sample from that particular build okay. that is made on this machine with that laser, with that powder, you can go and test that one. Mm -hmm. And we also do, as you say, we do like a, a sacrificial stem from that build. Actually, we're making 54, okay. 50 production, and then there are four that uh, some of them are for testing, some of them there may be development. Okay. You mentioned there the UCI regulations and the three to one aspect ratio. And we mentioned earlier about a little bit of rider resistance. How is the UCI resistance to to this new frame and to 3D printing in general? Actually, they've been pretty good. Okay. Yeah, pretty good and open. Uh, maybe we helped with that because the UCI knows that we do these things since 2016, 2015 actually, with the our record bike at yes. the time. Okay. So it was not totally new. It was not totally untried and mm. so on. Uh, yes, there was a little bit of a skeptical moment when uh, the, there was a the problem with the broken handlebar last year, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they were convinced at least that if you take care of your production and your design, you're getting a good result and it's not a manufacturing method problem that it was at the time. Mm -hmm. It was a, um, you may call it a design issue. Okay, okay. Yeah. So uh, UCI, the UCI actually, as I said, they were pretty good. Uh, I have no complaints about it. Uh, they approached it as, here is another uh, component. Um, it just needs to be strong enough. Mm -hmm. It needs to comply with the uh, UCI regulations regarding minimums and maximums and so on, and mm -hmm. you can make it out of whatever you want. And the, the UCI rules, as they currently said, especially around frame approval and, and the process for, for getting a frame approved, and I'm thinking especially around also the 
commercial availability rules, are those in any way hindering 3D printing's development going forward? I'm thinking like if you one of the major upsides to 3D printing might be customizing frames yeah. exactly to a writer. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like it would fit within frame uh, approval. The current rules as they are, okay. so you have to supply 2D drawings and then the full 3D, mm -hmm. and they had to scan it and compare it to what you supplied them. And you only have, I think it's less than a millimeter deviation from what you supplied. Okay. So it has to be very close to what you supplied them. So in effect, if you want a, a change on that, you have to apply for another one and another one. Of course, mm -hmm. all this thing has a cost. So the current regulation as it is, yes, it will um, restrict it okay. to an extent. I guess the question is when is a, a new frame or a, a modified frame a new frame and when is a modified frame still the same frame that they have approved? Oh, no, no, the, the, for the UCI, anything which is under the approved list, mm -hmm. the UCI has every single piece that it was ever produced by any company. Okay. So if you go on their list and it says, I don't know, Cervelo, Pinarello, Specialized, whoever else, uh, I don't know, 10 uh, or 20, probably more than that, let's call it 50 different models, mm -hmm. for argument's sake, and each one of these models may have 10 different sizes, they have every single file of every single size of every single model that's approved. So if you yeah. change one dimension, that's a new frame? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So in effect, the UCI, they do go to big events like World Championships, Olympic Games, and stuff like this, mm -hmm. with their guy with a scanner, and mm -hmm. uh, they pick people, uh, they pick either say, I want that one to be tested, I want this to be tested. And they compare they, it? They, they scan it, and they compare it, they say, which model is this, is that model, where is uh, exactly the one, click, does it fit? And is that, they're, they're scanning the geometry and the dimensions and the yeah. shapes and that, yeah, but yeah. how does the actual manufacturing process, so if, if you had a approved frame with made with carbon fiber and then you made the exact same frame 3D printed, yeah. would that pass? Um, I, the only sense is I'm not totally sure about that okay, one okay. at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. uh, the UCI, they're checking the external shape mm -hmm. and they also stipulate on the regulations that you have to have um, a certificate of a recognized test, mm -hmm. uh, like ISO 4210. Yes, okay. Uh, now, they don't specify only 4210, because in some countries, maybe for my sake in Japan, mm -hmm. or in America, you may have a different standard. So it has yes. to pass the local standard. Okay. So they leave the safety and reliability of the of all the components, including the frame, to the manufacturer. Okay. And then, like for this particular frame, we had to take the frame to the UCI to scan it, mm -hmm. and we had to supply the certificate from a recognized laboratory that it passed the test. Who also require a frame for testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. so we had to make one for the UCI for scanning and one for the lab mm -hmm. to go on and t test it and do pedaling and mm -hmm. forces and, for and aft forces and drop tests and I don't know whatever else they do. I, I guess it's kind of irrelevant though because a manufacturer is unlikely to want to take a frame that they have produced in carbon fiber and then go to the baller and the cost of 3D printing it after it's already been designed. But the reason I'm sort of asking is more so around the likes of the handlebars and that where you know you may have a carbon fiber handlebar, yeah. you could then go theoretically and make it in 3D printed, no problem. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the, this is currently the case. And as I said, it's a little bit of an unclear uh, situation right now. Mm -hmm. But you have to think about it. If you want to do it, you need to have a benefit. If you want to do it just for the fun of it, and you have the money, yeah, fair dues. <laughs> yes. But nobody in their sane mind, uh, they're going to go on and uh, do it. Mm -hmm. They Like, uh, we're doing the handlebars because there is an advantage. Mm. It is not a matter of let's do a another run in, in 3D printing. Mm -hmm. Because something which is designed to be for carbon, and for argument's sake, is designed to have a millimeter thickness in carbon, mm -hmm. you cannot go and make it in titanium or in aluminium or in something else, the same thickness. Okay. Because different materials behave in different ways. Yes. Like if we do something in scalm alloy and exactly the same component in, in titanium, mm -hmm. the component will have definitely different thickness. Mm -hmm. It may even have different internal structures depending on a number of uh, features. Mm -hmm. So you cannot really take something as is 100% and make it. I mean, actually, if you take something 100% from one material or manufacturing method and you make it with something else, you pretty much guarantee it will not be any good. <laughs> okay. It will either be too heavy, yes. if you make it out of stronger, heavier material, mm -hmm. or too light and flimsy if you make it out of a, a lower grade material. Mm -hmm. You can make anything out of anything, providing you put enough material there and you know what you're doing. So you can make it out of steel or titanium or aluminium or carbon fiber, mm -hmm. but the material thickness for steel, it may be half a millimeter. For aluminium, it may be one and a half millimeter. Yes. For mm -hmm. carbon, it'd be even more. It, uh, absolutely fascinating, you know, the stem, first of all, and all the components we've seen today. You know, just sort of wrap up today, having a brief look into your crystal ball, which has proved mm. slightly, uh, has, has proved well calibrated in the past, let's say. <laughs> I guess my first question is, now you've made a, all these components, you've finally made a full frame and fork. Uh, you're also working on crank sets you've done before. Every part of the bike, I think you mentioned earlier, you've also worked on wheels, the wheels used were yeah, your design. Yeah, yeah. The only part of the bike that you pointed to you hadn't worked on was the pedals and the tires, I yeah, think. Yeah. I had ideas. Actually, we did something for pedals in 2016, but as you might expect, the UCI rejected it. Okay. So we never saw the light of day. Yeah, well, we're uh, spiceless and what the UCI don't like. So if you want to share that with us, we'll be more. Uh, <laughs> but the, the question I was going to get to there is just, with, with so much now under the one roof, where do you think we can go in terms of optimization and improvements and efficiencies going forward? How much faster can we get just simply because you, you yeah. can actually make so much on the one with roof, whether that's Metron's roof or somebody else's roof. We seem to be getting to a point where all the optimization on the whole system is done. On no, the no, 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 I don't think it's done. Right now, the problem that you have is, is an independent bitch. Okay. So the, uh, the know-how to put it together is really what linking all these bits and how you can make things work together, that's the crucial bit. Mm -hmm. and uh, automating the process of customization. Right now, the process of customization usually goes through that you have to have a specialist looking at you and putting at you in the right position. Mm -hmm. uh, if it is aerodynamics, you have to do a combination of CFD and wind tunnel testing and so on. And through the wind tunnel testing, I, I got very involved in the wind tunnel testing with British Cycling till about 2012, from about 2002 till uh, about 2012. And what we found from there, the same 
event, if you have different riders, you need different aerodynamic interventions. Okay. Something that it will work on a 100 kilo sprinter will not work on a 60 kilo rider. Okay. So the skin suit or the handlebar or the wheels or the whatever, it has to, if you want to optimize it, it will be different for a bigger rider, different for a smaller rider. And that was sort of the origin of where we've got to today with yeah. riders all wearing different yeah. materials and different yeah. makeups of the same suit. Yeah, yeah. That was very obvious when we were doing the development for the skin suits for 2008 and 2012. Mm -hmm. The likes of Chris Hoy, mm -hmm. they needed different uh, interventions, let's call them, on the skin suits. And that, that's not just ridership, that's also the speeds and all that yeah. there, yeah, okay. Yeah, it has to do with the size of the body mm -hmm. and how much, uh, what is the speed that you're going through the air. Okay. But for argument's sake, even if you have two riders, that a 100 kilo rider and a 60 kilo rider or a 50 kilo rider, side by side going at the same speed, mm -hmm. the aerodynamics, they will work different for the smaller rider and different for the bigger rider. Okay. So uh, all this knowledge is out there, but it's actually in bits. Okay. And uh, people, they're still doing it in individual bits. So collecting all these things, you can actually, there are computer codes that can do these things for you today, but of course somebody has to program all that stuff and somebody has to pay for all that stuff. Okay. But as computing power gets cheaper and cheaper, programs become uh, more and more uh, complicated and so on, I think it's not going to be too long before you're going to be able to um, scan a rider, then manipulate the body of this rider on CFD and you find the position works with this rider. Mm -hmm potentially go back and test it that the rider can hold that position because there is no end of cases that uh, aerodynamics, they tell you, you can have a fantastically aerodynamic position, but you cannot hold it. Yes. So go back and test it and so on, and uh, then make a bike around that position. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to customize it, make it, make a bike around that position for that rider aerodynamically and for that rider for the amount of power this rider is producing. So you have the amount of material which is correct for you, mm -hmm. not for somebody else. The problem with that is all the regulation. Yes. Because the ISO standard says a bike frame, it has to withstand this. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if it is for a 50 kilo rider or a 100 kilo rider. But I guess the upside is that if you do eventually get to that place where you can scan and uh, predict what's perfect for each individual is that you could actually save so much time and testing yeah, yeah, and development yeah, yeah, and all going yeah, forward and yeah. when we get there. Yeah. We're already doing this, I mean, uh, the, uh, the wind tunnel. Yeah. So looking then 10 years from now, or even five years from now, first of all, where is Metron going? Are we, are we going to be seeing more components like the stem or, yeah. or more frames? Uh, definitely, we're going to try and go more out in the market with the Mythos brand. Okay. And starting from stems and handlebars, you know, cockpit components, yes. and then growing bigger. Uh, for the frames... Uh, Do we ever get to the point then where, you know, I'm going for a bike fit with a bike fitter, they measure me up, that bike fitter's linked to a, a, a bicycle manufacturer, whether it be Pinarello or Specialized yeah. or whoever, yeah. and from that bike fit then I order my custom frame that comes 3D printed, yeah, yeah, is that...? Yeah, 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 that, that is entirely possible today. Okay. Today. We're not talking about like in five years time. With the frame that's actually light enough and stiff enough to use on the road? And uh, you have to be careful over there because um, 
you ha you're gonna have the case like a, you may have like somebody who comes in and says I'm a 50 kilo rider I don't need a bike to withstand a 100 kilo rider mm -hmm. but then it becomes a, a liability on whose decision is to go to that mm -hmm. and uh, that will be a difficult one so I think the totally custom in terms of strength it will be a lot of resistance. Like for me, if you come to me and you tell me I got something like this, I'm going to ask you to sign your life on because at the end of the day, you need to know what you're getting into. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to put a few kilos or you're going to get a bit stronger and the bike is not good, then what are you going to do? So the hurdle at the moment isn't actually a technology. The hurdle is red tape and I guess also the, just the price of making a 3D printed custom yeah. one-off frame. Uh, but uh, through the years, I'm always surprised on where are all these people that they pay 10 and 20 and 30,000 pounds for a bicycle. Yeah. But I'm working with them. In fact, actually, this is like the lower end of the, the range that I tend to work because we tend to work for the Olympic level upwards. <laughs> so they start from this kind of price upwards. You said earlier they started five figures. Uh, you couldn't confirm if the first figure was one, two, three, four, hey, whatever, five. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in reality, the, most of the money for these things is the development. Not so much. The unit price is not cheap. Mm -hmm. But it's not fifty thousand pounds or something like this. Okay. The unit price, I think, hope uh, they had a price for the frame. Can remember twelve thousand pounds, mm -hmm. which, if you think about it, getting a very very special piece of kit, mm -hmm. uh, you may say twelve thousand pounds. I could buy a car for that. <laughs> but over here, you're getting a very unique bit. You know, it's a lot of work and effort to go into it. Mm -hmm. So the car you're getting it cheap because they're making thousands and thousands and thousands of those. So the, I guess the, also the yeah. price will come down yeah. and yeah. accessibility will become yeah. easier yeah. also, I guess. In fact, the more people they want it, mm -hmm. the more the price comes down. Mm -hmm. Because then you're putting automation, you're putting industrialization, you're making more, you're finding ways of making it quicker and cheaper and all that stuff, for sure. Also thinking longer term, environmentally, how is 3D printing hold up compared um, to other manufacturing? Actually, methods? there is a report that came out very recently, like just a few days ago, uh, which it shows that uh, 3D printing is actually stands pretty if comparable to other manufacturing processes like CNC and uh, things like this. It depending on the material that you're using, mm -hmm. it's it's uh, from equal to quite favorable. Okay. Like, if I remember correctly, they compared aluminum alloys and stuff like this. And on aluminum, CNC machining and uh, uh, 3D printing is more or less equal in okay. terms of energy, resources, and so on. Because on 3D printing, you only use the material that you're using. Whereas with uh, CNC machining, you're starting with a lot more mm -hmm. that you have to cut down and create a pile of swarf and so on. I heard it somewhere recently put very well that 3D printing is additive manufacturing. Yeah. So you're only using what you need and what yeah. you, the overuse you can actually recycle and yeah, reuse. Yeah, to a significant extent. Whereas CNC and traditional, more traditional methods are more like subtractive uh, uh, manufacturing yeah. and you can just, yeah. or at least it made a lot of sense yeah. in my mind how there can be so much yeah. extra waste in that. It's actually depending also on the material. Uh, if I remember correctly, for steel, uh, 3D printing steel component is actually better. Okay. And titanium is even better because Titanium is a difficult material to machine and so on. Mm -hmm. So it takes quite a lot of resources to machine. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, when you're melting the material with a laser or an electron beam, it makes no real difference really. So a titanium part made uh, in 3D printing 
is actually significantly better in uh, resource use comparing to a, a titanium part made in, uh, with CNC machining for argument's sake. Walking around your offices here, you have a couple of 3D printed aero handlebars that are now acting as uh, coat hangers and tape hangers and that. Uh, is there any other, you know, upcycling? Can you melt that down and, and reuse the, the... Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like any other metal. In effect. Okay. So you can... Uh, three. Uh, uh, it's just like you have an aluminium bicycle frame, you scrap it and you sell it for scrap, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to get probably like a pound for your frame or 10 pounds, whatever you may get. It's the same thing as this, you know, the same as this. This is titanium, you can sell it in theory for you. You're not going to get much money, mm -hmm. but yes, it's... Uh, yeah, it's more the point though it can be reused as... Yeah, 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 you know, it's just, for more normal, than just a coat hanger. normal metal, in fact. Okay. It's pretty high-grade titanium, actually, you know, yeah. We could talk all day here. We do oh, have to. Yeah. We do have to wrap it up. Just tell me in a couple of words what what are the next things we can expect to see from Metron. You may not be able to tell us exactly, but give us some hints what we can. Um, definitely to commercialize more what we know. Mm -hmm. So towards uh, stems, handlebars, and relatively speaking, small components. Uh, we're working towards commercializing the frame. Mm -hmm. We have in our hands a rather unique technology. Mm -hmm. We know one or two others that made similar things as demo PCs and stuff like this, but this is like a proper world-class level, mm -hmm. go race, aerodynamic, uh, light enough, pass all the tests, you put a world champion on. Mm -hmm. So uh, we know how to do that now. So now for us is how we can go out and make a commercial success out of that. So definitely we're going to push on that one. Uh, I also, as, as we said earlier on, crystal ball gazing and all that stuff, the idea of you measure somebody in Malaysia, in Singapore, in Canada, in wherever, in London, and that file goes onto a factory and you have your digital version of that, and you can send it to the customer, say, that is your frame, do you like it? Mm -hmm. And then approving it and then put it on the machine and you have a little camera looking in as the laser goes bzz, 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 and it's melting things. That that is, we can do that today, actually. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, as I said, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, we look forward to see what's coming next. As I said earlier, when the time comes for that replacement hip, I want a Metron 3D printed one. Oh, so right, okay. uh, put, I'll put my order in now. Uh, and yeah, just, just thank you again for your, for your time and, no uh, and all the best.